so we can start. Um, have people started Prometheus Unbound? Are you liking it? You think so? Okay, that's a good answer. Have other people started? Yeah. Are you liking it? It's tough. Yeah. Um, as I say, don't read it for the plot. Okay. There sort of is a plot, but don't read it for the plot. Um, what, just to give you some sense of what he's doing besides um, following or modernizing or <coughs> adapting Greek tragedy, which is also not <coughs> something you really read for the plot, although there do tend to be um, plots in Greek tragedy. That's not why you read them. Why you read them is for the um, intensely poetic responses that various characters have to the plot that's going on. Um, but he's also very strongly influenced by Goethe's Faust, um, and also by some um, he and Byron were both influenced by Faust and um, both wrote dramas that in some sense are doing the sort of thing that Goethe did, which is what Shelley calls a lyrical drama. That is that what you have are occasions um, in ways that we were talking about on Tuesday, um, occasions for really intense responsiveness to a situation. Um, where the intensity of that responsiveness is a way that the external world um, interacts with um, internal subjectivity. The very idea of a lyrical drama, which is what Shelley calls Prometheus Unbound, is kind of his take. Do people know what the most famous title in Romanticism, whose first word is lyrical, might be? Sorry? Lyrical Ballads, yes. So that title is a very radical title, Lyrical Ballads, um, because a ballad tells a story. That's what that's the nature of a ballad, is to tell a story, and often a supernatural story, a story of punishment, a story of madness, a story of hubris, um, whatever. Do people have a sense of that, of ballads um, before Wordsworth and Coleridge, what ballads are like? Um, Lord Randall, for example, or the Trois Cobres. Is this something that rings a bell at all? Not at all. Um, okay, so the bat, um, or why does your brand say drop with blood, Edward, my Edward? No. Okay, so a ballad is often um, someone will um, make a decision that to be greedy. Um, and that decision will come back to destroy them. Um, someone will commit a murder, and then they will be haunted by the person they've murdered. Um, someone will um, assert that um, she will never marry, and then she'll die the next day. Um, and ballads were collected. Are, are, is that a look of familiarity there? I don't think you were talking about like not getting married at any time. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, ballads um, go back immemorially. They're oral traditions that people remember because they're recited from parents to children, from older siblings to younger siblings. Um, they're things. They're they are a very pure kind of poetry, which is not poetry which is expressive of what a writer um, wants to say about himself or herself, 
but poetry which is remembered the way fairy tales are remembered, partly because of the poetic um, force of the lines, um, partly because there's a... Well, I mean, nursery rhymes are, are an equivalent to ballads. Um, no one really knows who first wrote, or even if it's r- right to speak of writing various nursery rhymes. Um, they they develop through a kind of natural poetic selection down the generations. What's remembered gets remembered, and what's forgotten gets replaced um, by people trying to remember lines. And if the and if a line sticks, if someone comes up with a more memorable line then that line will be remembered also. So down the generations, they're developed in the telling. The way jokes are developed in telling, that is, a good joke gets better um, over the weeks that it's told um, as people tell better and better versions of it, which are the ones that get remembered. Ballads get better over centuries. And in the late 18th century, people started collecting ballads, um, folklore, as a discipline, as something that people think is actually worth doing, is um, starts occurring in the late 18th century. The Grimm brothers start collecting fairy tales. Um, and um, in England, ballads, of course, are um, language-based in a way that fairy tales aren't quite. Fairy tales are easily translatable. Um, ballads, not so much. But in England, um, someone named Bishop Percy, a bishop, um, went to the North Country and started collecting the oral ballads and um, published them in a book called Percy's Relics, um, which are relics of this oral poetry. Um, there are ballads quoted in, before, in literature before, but they weren't collected until the 18th century. Um, in a little bit later, if you guys know any kind of um, mountain music, North Carolinian mountain music, um, a lot of that music are actually collections of ballads. It's in, people are interested in both American and British versions of ballads that go back beyond the 18th century and then take on an American um, setting in American words, um, if you look at them in the Appalachians, for example. Um, versus English versions of the same ballads, which start developing differently as they get remembered. Um, but they're ballads all over the place. Um, they do get collected. They do get recorded. There was a guy named, um, I think it's Edward Francis Child, um, who has the biggest collection of ballads. And in fact, um, now when you cite ballads, you often cite Child's version. Child will have a number. Um, so various ballads are, are assigned Child numbers. Um, what Wordsworth and Coleridge did was to say, look, this is a very powerful kind of poetry, almost anonymous poetry, poetry that tells stories, but where the speaker is not someone um, who we think of as the poet. It's not, oh my goodness, Shakespeare wrote this ballad. That tells us something about Shakespeare or Milton or something like that. The ballad is the ballad. The ballad is somehow the voice of poetry itself or of the history of poetry or of the people of England or um, the, the um, generation of time. Um, but it's not what we think of as lyrical poetry, which is a single person speaking very intensely about what he or she feels about something. Um, ballads can't and don't do that. Um, 
but Wordsworth and Coleridge decided that they wanted to try to use that ballad um, uh, form and that ballad quality, that ballad feel of the anonymous and the achieved simplicity that ballads um, arrive at, that they wanted to use that to talk and to express lyrical situations. So a typical thing in lyrical ballads will be that you will get the language, the very simple language. Ballads are often written in eight and six meter. That is to say, you'll get um, a line with eight syllables followed by a line with six syllables. Be it right or wrong, these men among, that's eight, on women do complain, that's six. Affirming this, how that it is, that's eight. A labor spent in vain, that's six. Um, for love them, um, ne'er so well, yet ne'er a deal, they love you back again. That's the ballad called The Nut Brown Maid. That's how it starts. Um, and um, those, that meter is, is a very memorable meter. It's the alteration, or alternation, excuse me, between a longer and a shorter line with very striking rhymes that parcel out the lines into... Um, blocks that are very easy to remember, very easy to put together, and have a cumulative power. Um, and talk about, you could therefore say, elemental things, because ballads are written in a kind of elemental form, very different from iambic pentameter. Iambic pentameter is something which is as great as it is because it prevents elemental forms, because iambic pentameter can't be made symmetrical. Because if you have five feet in a line, you can't break the line down the middle into two halves that are, that are parallel to each other. If you break a ten-syllable iambic line down the middle, what you get is da-da, da-da, da. Those are the first five feet. That is da-da, da-da, da. And the second five feet is da-da, da-da, da. So an iambic pentameter line can't be symmetrical. And its refusals of symmetry force poets into a kind of expressive sophistication of which Shakespeare and Milton and Wordsworth are the great exemplars. Ballads are the, at the opposite end of poetry from iambic pentameter. Um, ballads are um, the kind of poetry which is highly memorable, fairly easy to, in fact, very easy to ad lib in because the units are so clear-cut because you have the units in advance, which is why they alter, but why when good alterations come, those good alterations are easily remembered. So Wordsworth and Coleridge like the feel of a ballad and also like the sense that what a ballad was about was the most basic of things, life and death. All ballads are about life and death and um, loss and memory and, um, and experiences of being haunted. But they said, well, what if you wrote a ballad, what if you wrote in that form about more common human experiences that poetry usually didn't um, treat, which was, again, the huge innovation that Wordsworth and Coleridge brought to poetry. It's how they invented modern poetry? Um, what if you write about people who are living the kinds of lives that people live, um, lives of very great affective intensity, 
but because they're not kings or queens or because it's not about war in heaven or whatever, um, poems don't get written about those things. But what if they did get written about those things? And so lyrical ballads, that title is a kind of proud contradiction. It's an intentional oxymoron that, you, that, you're, that what they're doing is combining two vastly different kinds of poetry. The lyrical, which is the I poem. This is, I am now going to say how I feel. I'm going to describe this unique feeling with the ballad, with the anonymous other poem, the poem um, which is the voice not of a single person, but somehow the voice of, of um, poetry itself as it passes through the sieve of time. Um, so Lyrical Ballads was an extraordinary um, putting together of two absolutely different kinds of poetic modes. Shelley and Goethe also, Goethe wrote ballads, um, but Shelley in calling Prometheus Unbound a lyrical drama is um, doing something not unlike what Wordsworth and Coleridge are doing in lyrical ballads. It's not as radically original, uh, partly because Shelley thinks with some um, um, with some accuracy that he's going back to something that um, you find in Greek drama. But again, the idea is that dramas are supposed to tell stories about the interactions of people who want things from each other. That's um, if you had a basic definition of drama, um, a Shakespearean definition of drama, but a basic definition of drama is that it's people talking to each other in order to try to get things out of each other and in order to try and um, not give up too much in those negotiations. So drama is about is, is narrative, it's plot, it's people putting pressure on each other, which is what all narrative is about. And drama is a particularly externalized form of narrative because people talking to each other, no one is telling us what they really think. We have to infer that from their interaction. It's not like a novel where the novelist can say, even though he said, I'm looking forward to seeing you tomorrow, his heart inwardly sunk at the idea. You know, that's a standard sentence in a novel. You can't have that in a drama. In a drama, someone has to say, I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. And there has to be some other way of conveying to us that that isn't true, that um, he didn't really mean it. Um, so drama is very much about external um, storytelling, external relations, where all expression, all linguistic expression, you know, and the great dramas in English are poetic. The great dramas in Greek are poetic. It's still poetry. But the linguistic expression isn't, in most cases, simply expression, simply um, a, an account of what someone feels. In most cases, it's um, expression for a purpose, instrumental expression. What happens in the most intense dramas is you get to a point where someone is left with nothing to do but say how they really feel. Um, that's what you get in at a climax in a Shakespeare play, in a Shakespearean um, in a Shakespearean context or at the climax of a, of a Greek play um, when you get um, some, some, especially in tragedy, some absolute 
moment of self-expression because there's nothing else to do. There's no, there's nothing else that saying can get you except self-expression. So sometimes, especially in tragedies of the climaxes of dramas, you get to a place where someone will say just what they mean and drama will start verging on lyric. But what Shelley is doing here is producing lyrics in practically every speech in Prometheus Unbound. It's as though using um, only the tools or only the words of lyrical poetry, only the forms of lyrical poetry, he's putting a drama together. If any, if anyone's seen the great uh, Julie Tamer movie Across the Universe, has anyone seen that? Um, she's doing something similar. Um, what she does in that movie, do you want to describe it? You're talking about the one with the Beatles songs. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, she weaves the Beatles songs into a story and it like follows these people. Yeah, from the 60s to the 80s. Um, yeah, so it's a musical. It's about three hours long. Um, it's really pretty great. Um, yeah, it's visually great. It's, it's a musical and it's about three hours long and it's about. Um, uh, the counterculture in the 60s and what happens to it in the 70s as people grow older and so on. Um, but every single song is a Beatles song. And every song makes sense the w- um, in the story that she tells. That is to say, there's a character named Jude. So when there's a reunion at the end, Jude is coming back. To, I mean, this is a spoiler, but okay. Uh, Jude is coming back um, at the end of the movie, and everyone is, and, and his friend who they'd had a falling out, but now his friend sees him and he's waving to him and he's calling, Hey, Jude! Um, and he's just so happy, you know, that part of Hey, Jude at the end. Judy, Judy, Judy! That part is just, it's perfect. There's a character who um, comes into a uh, very psychedelic 60s party and she can't get in through the door, so guess how she comes in? you don't know the Beatles well enough. She comes in through the bathroom window. Yeah. Um, So um, what Julie Tamer is doing, and she's a totally brilliant director. I mean, some of her sometimes doesn't work at all, but she is a totally brilliant director. Um, What Julie Tamer is doing is figuring out a way to use Beatles songs, which are lyrics, and weave them into a drama, turn them into a drama. Um, That idea, you could say, to some extent comes out of what Shelley and Goethe are doing. Um, so that's, that's what makes uh, Prometheus Unbound both intense and unexpected um, because the drama is that Jupiter wants something from Prometheus. Sure, that's drama. Jupiter wants something from Prometheus and Prometheus won't give it to him. Um, but that's about it as far as drama goes. Um, and the rest of it is lyric. As I say, that's what Goethe does in Faust, um, because Faust has to deal with spirits of all different sorts. And the spirits have views which they sing about, um, about what Faust is doing. Um, so Shelley and Byron were both very heavily influenced by Goethe. So is Coleridge, but he didn't write the same kinds of lyrical dramas. But they were strongly influenced by Goethe. And um, one of the fascinating things is that um, Faust Part Two which was written after the death of Shelley and Byron. So Goethe wrote Faust, um, I think in his 50s, um, maybe even earlier than that. Um, 
but then he wrote Faust Part Two when he was 82. Um, and Faust Part Two is really amazing. And in Faust Part Two, he talks about Byron. Um, that is, so there's a back and forth between the Shakespeare of Germany, the greatest German writer ever, Goethe, who has a back and forth, you know, and who's the only German writer who really is a rival of Shakespeare's, um, uh, has a back and forth with um, Byron, not so much Shelley, whom I don't know that he knew, um, but certainly with Byron, who is the most famous English poet of the time by far. Um, so that's, um, but again, the radicalism of Prometheus Unbound, as far as form goes, is this idea of trying to use not the intensity of a situation, not the intensity of plot, not the intensity of various kinds of characters who are different and who, when they get mixed with each other, again, that you could say that's what happens in drama, is you get the right mixture of recognizable human characters becomes combustible in a good drama. Um, a good drama can never rely on one character. It has to rely, you know, a classic good drama has to rely, well, two of you do drama, right? So would you agree with us that a classic good drama has to um, give you characters that you recognize and then um, uh, put them together in a combustible way? Um, but that's not what Shelley is doing. What he's doing instead of that, instead of um, plot and characters that you recognize, all of it is coming out of lyrical intensity on the parts of various characters. Um, and those characters, as you know, will include Earth, for example. Um, so it's not only Prometheus and Asia and, and Panthea and Jupiter and so on, but it's Earth speaks. Um, Earth, the, the mother of Prometheus. And when you get to Act 4 of Prometheus Unbound, um, you'll see a different character, not Earth, but the spirit of the Earth and the spirit of the moon. Um, and um, they sing to each other. Anyhow, it's really intense. Everything in Prometheus Unbound, every single speech is a very intense poem in itself. And if you're not expecting that, that's going to be hard. If you are expecting it, um, especially on a second reading, as I said before, um, you start appreciating it as um, not an anthology of poems because the poems all go together, because they do all interact with each other, but as um, a lot of lyric poetry um, interacting with other lyric poetry. Okay, I wanted us um, today to look at Mont Blanc, um, but before we do that, um, just following up on stuff we were saying on Tuesday, um, I want us to look at a poem called The Two Spirits, an allegory, which I didn't put on the syllabus, but which I actually have different page numbers from you, um, but so someone who has the newer edition of the Norton Shelley, um, I think it's around, it's around page 130 or so. 137, I think. Um, and partly I want us to look at this because um, it's a, you know, 50-line poem, 47-line, 48-line poem, which is nevertheless a kind of drama. Um, it calls itself an allegory, and what it's an allegory of is either 
very obvious or um, not at all obvious, but that doesn't matter so much. Um, but it's also a dialogue. So the first spirit speaks, um, as many spirits will speak in Prometheus Unbound. The first spirit speaks. O thou who plumed with strong desire would float above the earth, beware, a shadow tracks thy flight of fire. Night is coming. So the first spirit is speaking to the second spirit and telling that spirit to beware. O thou who plumed with strong desire would float above the earth, beware. What does the word plumed there mean? Say it again. No, so you're thinking like um, a like a plume of smoke, right? So an explosion would give a plume of smoke, but it actually doesn't mean that. Um, that's a metaphorical use of the word plume. Um, what has plumage? A bird. Um, that's because a plume is a feather. Um, the word plume means feather. Um, so plumed means something like feathered, or winged, with strong desire. The feathers that allow that spirit to fly, that, that cause that spirit to fly, um, are made of strong desire. So plumed with strong desire. Desire to do what? O thou who plumed with strong desire would float above the earth. What does the word would mean? Easy question. The man who would be king, what does that title mean? I would, I could. Well, it's just to or would if, if plumed with strong desire. Yeah, so it's would means something like desire. So you who want to float above the earth who have a strong desire to float above the earth, who because of your strong desire have the plumes that would allow you to do the very thing that you desire. So the desire itself would be, not would in, in, the, in the sense of wants to, but desire itself could um, be the thing, the desire to fly could be the thing that allows that spirit to fly. But nevertheless, says the first spirit, beware, a shadow tracks thy flight of fire. Night is coming. So the second spirit would have a flight of fire, a beautiful phrase. But watch out, because night is coming. Bright are the regions of the air, and when winds and beams, Shelley never finished this poem, um, found after his death Mary Shelley turned that into and among the winds and beams which is, um, I should tell you she edited his poetry after he died he drowns in 1822 and this is why grief and um, loss now do find echoes in her heart if you remember the introduction to um, Frankenstein um, but she spent a lot of time editing his poetry and writing notes to it and um, 
people keep suggesting that those notes should all be brought together into a single book, and you would have a, this really neat um, volume of Mary Shelley's account of her husband, um, both autobiographical and biographical and critical. Um, her notes are really interesting. But for the unfinished poems, the nearly finished but not quite finished poems, she tweaked them. And um, those tweaks are, you know, they're not, they're not him, but they're still good. They still um, give you a sense, at least, of what someone who really knew him thought was the closest thing she, and who was a really good writer, thought was the closest thing she could do to finishing the poems for him. So it's better to see that this is not quite finished, but also helpful to see how she tweaked it. So brighter the regions of the air and among the winds and beams. That's how she writes it. Um, so he leaves it. And when winds and beams do something, but we don't know what, um, it were delight to wander there. Night is coming. It would be something like when winds and beams contend or when wind, winds and beams um, I don't know, burst out. Um, night, it were delight to wander there. Night is coming. So the first spirit notice understands the delight that the second spirit is proposing for itself. The first spirit says that the regions of the air are bright and that among these winds and beams, you can experience delight even in this danger, that the flight of fire, even if night is coming, the flight of fire, he can see the attraction. He can see why the second spirit is um, plumed with strong desire to float above the earth. But he's saying, be careful, because night is coming. You won't survive this. The second spirit replies, The deathless stars are bright above. If I should cross the shade of night, within my heart is the torch of love, and that is day. So even if night is coming, the stars are always there, and if night falls on me, or if I cross into the shade of night, I carry within my heart the torch of love, and that that is day. And the moon will smile with gentle light on my golden plumes. So we know what plumes means now. And the moon will smile with gentle light on my golden plumes. Where'er they move, the meteors will linger round my flight and make night day. So the first spirit, therefore, is the spirit warning against night. And the second spirit is the spirit who dismisses that warning by saying that he can turn night into day or that what he desires and the way he desires it can make night day. The first spirit is dubious. But if the whirlwinds of darkness wake in hail and lightning and stormy rain, so what makes you think you'll see the stars or the moon? What if the whirlwinds of darkness waken hail and lightning and stormy rain? 
See, the bounds of the air are shaken. Night is coming, so a storm is coming. The red swift clouds of the hurricane yon declining sun have overtaken. The clash of the hail sweeps o'er the plain. Night is coming. So it's not the gentle evening that you think you're going to fly in. A hurricane is here. Night is coming as hurricane, as hail, as disaster. But the second spirit responds, I see the glare and I hear the sound. That is the glare of the hurricane, the sound of the hail. I see the glare and I hear the sound. I'll sail on the flood of the tempest, dark with the calm within and light around which make night day. So like the poet in Alaster, he's going to sail the flood of the tempest. Yes, night is coming, but he's going to do that anyhow. And with the calm within himself and the light that he carries, he will make night day. And thou, when the gloom is deep and stark, look from thy dull earth slumber bound. So when you do that, when you look from your dull earth slumber bound, my moon-like flight thou then mayst mark on high, far away. So maybe there won't be a moon, but my flight itself will be moon-like, and you can see it from your dull earth slumber bound. So that's the dialogue between the two spirits. One is fearful, warns the other against taking this risk, against giving himself to the um, powers of nature, to what you could call the sublime. And the other is saying, no, what I carry within me will make night into day. Um, the first thing to notice is that the intensity of what the second spirit is doing is something that the first spirit is perceiving. That is, the second spirit says, it's all going to be calm. I carry the torch of love, I have uh, the calm within and the light around, and I will make night day, and that will all be fine. The spec second spirit sees it all as daylight. It's the first spirit who sees the power of what it is the second spirit wants to do, who sees the danger of what it is that the second spirit is running. And without the first spirit, you wouldn't be able to see. We wouldn't be able to see. There would be no evocation of what it is that the second spirit is doing. The second spirit is just basically saying, it's no big deal. I have the torch of light in my heart, and um, it'll all be daylight for me. And maybe that's true and maybe it isn't. But what makes the second spirit impressive is the first spirit's warning. What makes the second spirit impressive is the first spirit's fear. 
on behalf of the second spirit. So it's not the case that we can just say, oh, yeah, the second spirit has the lamp of the torch of love within his heart, and so it's all good. It's what the power that this poem is about is a power that requires the difference in perspective between first and second spirit. That is a version of the difference in perspective that we were talking about when we talked about the inner self and the outside world. Again, the pure happiness of the outside world, that's words worthy in childhood when you're a child. Feeling that the outside world now represents what you've lost, what is different from you. How you differ from a place where you were once at home. That's where a certain kind of intensity comes from. That difference is the difference between the self and landscape, is one way we were talking about it, between the soul and nature and the natural world, but also between the monster between Frankenstein and the monster. That is another, an other, someone who is other to you and whose perspective you don't have and whose resistance to your having their perspective because they are another subjectivity. It's that becoming aware of another subjectivity. That's where the intensity comes from. That's what Byron is saying um, when, he, when he describes why he writes poetry. This is our introduction to Frankenstein. It is to create another being and to live and feel with that being, not what I feel, which is nothing, says Byron, but what you, child of my soul, what you feel, what I endow you with, but then by endowing you with it, make other than me. That, in that gap, that's where the intensity arcs. So here you can see it between these two spirits. In Alastor, you can see it. Um, Alastor, again, is, is a poem that you can just get lost in its lyric raptures. But it does have a structure. And the structure is that there's a speaker, a narrator, who tells the story of the poet. And then, having told the story of the poet and what happens to the poet, he's thrown back on himself as not being that figure. The poet is a figure outside of himself whose story he tells and whose story becomes more and more intense. And it's that intensity that he experiences precisely because he's not the poet. And so the story of the poet is something outside of him, the story of another subjectivity. And the poet himself feels the intensity of pursuing the veiled maid. But it's always the other and the difference between oneself and another that is driving intensity in Shelley. You'll see this all over Prometheus Unbound. It's, a, it's one of the reasons that Prometheus Unbound is a drama, is that Panthea is interested in 
Asia's experience of intensity. And Asia's experience of intensity comes from her trying to think through Prometheus's experience of intensity. But what you'll always get in Shelley is a difference between self and other, where that difference is itself the thing that the self experiences. Doesn't it's not, you know, the 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 um uh diss on romanticism is that romanticism is all about, oh my soul, I'm so deep, I'm so great, um, all that matters is me. That that the rap on romanticism is that it's this intense expression of um, a single and solipsistic ego. And that's as wrong as can be. Romanticism is always about the idea, the discovery that the self or the soul is not enough. That the self or the soul is always at its most intense. It's aware of what is other to it. The outside world and ultimately another soul. And not possessing it all, not being self-sufficient, that's what the great romantic poems are always discovering is, is the inability to be self-sufficient, how that self-sufficiency leads to only disaster. Um, it's always the pursuit of something that can't be found within the soul, but can't be found anywhere either. Because if it could be found, it could be assimilated. If it could be assimilated, then it's part of the soul. So you can feel this a little bit by what happens to the last two stanzas now in The Two Spirits, and allegory, which is we now get a different perspective on those two spirits. Some say there is a precipice where one vast pine hangs frozen to ruin or piles of snow and chasms of ice mid-alpine mountains. And that the languid storm pursuing that winged shape forever flies round those hoar branches, I renewing its airy fountain. So some people look at the landscape and they see some spirit a winged shape, being pursued eternally by a storm around a pine that's hanging frozen to ruin. Um, this is the, an image that he will pick up again in Mont Blanc. So this is what some people say. They look at the landscape, and to the extent that they metaphorize it, that they see... Um, intentional beings, spirits, and so on in that landscape. What they see is a wind eternally pursuing a spirit that can never get away from it. And that's the first spirit's vision of things, that the shadow is tracking by flight of fire, that if you go into the sky, um, you will be in danger, that the hail and <coughs> lightning and whirlwinds of darkness will chase you and um, that, that you will meet disaster. So that's what some say. That's what some see. But then some say, and this is a different some, not the right 
That is, it's not one is right and one is wrong. It's that there are two different views of this landscape. Some say when the nights are dry and clear and the death dews sleep on the morass, sweet whispers are heard by the traveler which make night day. And a shape like his early love doth pass upborne by her wild and glittering hair and when he awakes on the fragrant grass he finds night day so some looking at this scene say that sometimes the nights are dry and clear and then the traveler hears sweet whispers presumably the whispers of love from the second spirit and then the traveler dreams and a shape like his early love doth pass upborne by her wild and glittering hair now think how much is done in those two lines that is the traveler this is what some people say that if a traveler goes here on dry and clear nights he'll dream and what he'll dream of is his early love which is to say that all people eventually will have had early loves. The, the first love, the love that matters most to them in some sense, but the love that is no longer with them, that that's part of human life, is you have an early love, and that early love always matters to you, and that early love is an early love, not the love that the traveler has now, if he has any love at all, but that this will be reawakened. And a shape like his early love doth pass. Who is that shape? The spirit, the second spirit, now appears to the traveler. Is a projection of the traveler, or is somehow what reminds the traveler what it is that you love when you love early? And a shape like his early love doth pass, upborne by her wild and glittering hair. So now, either the second spirit is perfectly appropriately described as female here, um, or the second spirit simply reminds the traveler of his early love, and so he remembers her as though she is upborne by her wild and glittering hair. And when he awakes on the fragrant grass, he finds night day. So what does the word finds mean there? Why does he find night day? Okay, so, so just explain what finds means. I, I, this isn't a hard question, I don't think. But I do think there are two possibilities for the word find. Um, like a realization? Okay, a realization. Um, like I find um, um, the answer to a math problem. Get, 
give a parallel. Uh, Okay, so he sees night, but he realizes, actually, it's day. So that would be a second spirit kind of thing to do. Um, there's an actually in the way I just put it. So he sees night and he says, well, actually, it's day. Um, there's another reason someone might find night day. Um, at least one other. You wake up and you find night day. Why? Because it's daytime. Because you slept through the night. Um, he sleeps on the morass. He's a little bit anxious and worried, but then he dreams of his early love, and then he wakes on the fragrant grass, which is how Adam wakes in the Fairy Queen, by the way. Um, he wakes up on the grass to find um, that Eve isn't there, as he thought. Um, and he goes looking for her. Um, he says, I woke. Interesting word he's about to use. He says, I woke to find her or forever to deplore her loss when out of hope not far off there she was um, so Adam wakes in order to find her he's dreamt of Eve and now he wakes in order to either find her or forever to deplore her loss and he does find her um, here the traveler wakes up thinking it's night but he wakes up and it's daytime. And he finds night day. Just the way you might find yourself, um, you know, you might be lost, but suddenly find yourself in a familiar part of the city and think, oh, good, now I know. Um, I don't know, you know, I was worried that I wouldn't know where I was, but look, I find that um, I am where I want to be. So one possibility is he looks at night and says, actually, because of the torture of love, it's kind of day, daytimey. Um, night itself, I find, um, turns out to be like day. Another possibility is he sleeps through the night, and it's the most natural thing in the world. We've all found night day in that sense. Um, you know, you think you have insomnia, it's dark, what's going to happen? You're thinking about your insomnia, you're really unhappy about it, you open your eyes because you're so unhappy that you haven't slept, and whoa, it's daytime! I did sleep! I find night day, right? Anyone who's been insomniac has had that experience. Um, you look struck as though maybe you never have. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's the bad version of finding night day. I'm finally going to go to sleep. Oh, no, not dawn. Um, that's the worst. Yeah. Um, but there's yet another use of the word find. Um, it's what juries do. What do juries do? Convict. Or, or, or acquit. <laughs> um, and what do they say when they announce their verdict? Yeah, either guilty or not guilty. So the word find, when you find someone guilty or not guilty, um, does that mean something like finding a comb? Yeah. 
or finding a coin on the ground. That is that um, when you find a coin on the ground, what happens is, um, and um, remember we talked a little bit about um, the difference and the similarity in Latin between finding and inventing. In Latin, they're the same word. Um, but when you find a coin on the ground, it's there is a truth, which is true whether you find it or not. Um, and then you find it, which means that the truth becomes something available to your awareness. That's like waking up and finding out that it's daytime. Um, you wake up and, oh, it's daytime, that's fine. Um, or bad, depending. <laughs> um, but when juries find someone not guilty, you know, there's no double jeopardy in the U.S. So if someone is found not guilty, like O.J. Simpson, they're not guilty for good. And even if later evidence makes it incontrovertible that they did the crime, does that affect what the jury has found? It doesn't affect their decision. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't um, affect the verdict. The word verdict means speaking the truth, right? Um, dicto, to speak, or dico, um, dict is something spoken, and ver is truth, as in veracity, um, verifiable, and so on. Um, so when you pronounce a verdict, you're saying this is the truth um, that we are now saying. This is what we take to be true. But when a jury finds someone guilty or not guilty, they're not saying, oh, we were just you know, minding our own business and we stumbled upon this person's guilt. And look what I found. She's guilty. It's rather what's called um, a performative utterance. That is, when you find someone guilty or you find someone not guilty, your declaration now makes them either guilty or not guilty. That is, finding them guilty or not guilty is illegal rather than an epistemological um, uh, event. It is deciding that they will now be treated as guilty or deciding that they will now be treated as not guilty. Um, and we all know that O.J. Simpson did it. Um, nevertheless, he was found not guilty. And he's found not guilty forever. Um, yeah, he killed her. But no, he's not guilty of having done that because he was found not guilty. Um, so that use of find is a use which takes the word find as takes the decision-making part of find and stresses decision rather than accuracy of decision. When you find something to be the case in the sense that a jury does, you're not discovering that it's the case. You're deciding that it's the case. Now, that can merge with the idea of find as in discover. You discover some money on the ground and you decide, oh, here's something about reality. There's money on the ground. That is, your idea of what is real changes a little bit and you have to decide to allow it to change. But what juries do is a much more active sense of find 
than what people who find money on the ground are doing. Yeah. But, but finding money on the ground is passive. Now, often we find things, often the use of find will mean something like make up your mind. That is, um, you really want me to go with you, and I've given a lot of thought to this, um, whether I'm going to get in the, into the car with you, even though you've had a couple of drinks, and I find that I can't. Now, that doesn't mean that you said to yourself, huh, can I get into the car with him after he's had a couple of drinks? Let me search my mind and see what it says in my mind about getting into the car with someone with a couple of drinks. Oh, there, there, let me read what, off what it says there. Oh, it says, don't get into the car with a guy who's had a couple of drinks. Hey, you know, I searched my mind and I found this place and said no. That's not what it means in, in those circumstances. What it means is you made a decision. You thought it through and you actively made a decision that you wouldn't do it. And that decision wasn't already there for you to find. It was making the decision, you're using the word find, to mean making the decision. Okay, is, is this obvious to people or is this um, worth being this, this um, explicit about? I feel like that is already in your brain. Sorry? I feel like that would already be in your brain. Um, just like that? Even if you're torn about something? I think that someone would have like said it, so it'd be stored in your brain. And yeah, so you would think, but and you'd be like, "Oh, remember that time someone told me not to get in the car with someone who's been drinking?" All right. Well, then, then take some other thing where you okay. you decide whether you're going to go um, blow off your homework or not tonight. Go on a hike instead of doing your homework, okay. and then you find that you just can't do it. Um, but that's decision making. Okay. Um, someone could say, "Sure, you can," and if they're convincing enough, you'd say, "Hey, you're right, I can." Um, but often finding means gearing yourself up, girding yourself to do something that requires effort. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, so that sense of finding, that's like a jury's sense of finding. Um, that is working to get to this result and then committing to something rather than simply saying passively, yeah, anyone would have done this. The point about a jury is that, or the point about find used this way, is that it matters who's doing the finding. What's found matters. Um, it matters who's doing the finding to see what's found. Some people might blow off their homework or might go on a hike or might get in the car. Others won't. And it's not that they find that it's a good or a bad thing because that's a fact of the matter outside of their finding is that they actively are thinking this through and doing something in their thinking. Their thinking isn't only reflecting something, it's actually doing something. So to find night day under those, under that meaning of find, is to do what the second spirit himself does, which is to look at night and say, yes, it's night, but I find it day. I work hard. I use all my mental energy to find night, day, and I succeed. So finding is a kind of decision, find used that way, is a kind of work to make something so in the mind and a successful work to make something so in the mind. So 
people will often say, I mean, just people will often say this about the weather. Someone will say, boy, it's really cold tonight. And someone else will say, well, I find it rather pleasant, actually. And the word find there can mean either, you know, it doesn't strike me as cold, but it can also mean, um, yeah, I'm the kind of person who can find this pleasant because I put a little effort into finding it pleasant. Um, finding in this sense often has something like the difficulty of making. The work that goes into making is part of the meaning of find. So he has a dream of his early love. And when he wakes on the fragrant grass, under this meaning of find, um, his early love has given him the strength to look at night and see day, which is sort of um, your first reading of it. Um, but, not, but it requires strength as the point, which is what the second spirit has. Um, and it also required him to have an image of his early love, an image of something outside of himself in order to do it. Um, so that sense of, the, of something outside, of something other, um, that's what we're getting over and over again in Shelley. Let's go back now a little bit, back in time, um, to 1816 and to Mont Blanc. Um, and this is a poem that Shelley basically drafted um, the same day that he and Mary Shelley visited Mont Blanc in July of 1816 um, because they were so struck by the sublimity of the mountain. And um, for Percy Shelley, this becomes a way of... Um, thinking about the mind. So the first thing to notice, some of you have already heard what I have to say about Mont Blanc, but some of you haven't, and not in this context. The first thing to notice is we don't know what the subject of the first stanza of the poem is. That is to say, it could be about the mountain, or it could be about the mind. The everlasting universe of things flows through the mind, he says. And this could be, in some sense it presumably is something like, here I am looking at something everlasting, something which is, which is preeminently everlasting, the highest mountain in Europe, the highest mountain that anyone I know has ever seen or will ever see. Because no one in Shelley's circle has any possibility, really, of traveling to the Himalayas, um, which are the higher mountains in the Eurasian landmass. So this is the highest mountain that anyone will ever see. This is the Everest of the time. And so here is something which absolutely transcends human beings. This is part of the everlasting universe of things. And I look at it, and it flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves, now dark, now glittering, now reflecting gloom, now lending splendor, where from secret springs the source of human thought its tribute brings of waters. 
with sound but half its own. Such as a feeble brook will oft assume in the wild woods among the mountains lone, where waterfalls around it leap forever, where woods and winds contend in a vast river over its rocks, ceaselessly bursts and raves. Um, that should remind you a little bit of Alastor, of the river in Alastor. So, first approximation. He goes and sees Mont Blanc and thinks, wow, this is overwhelming. It flows right through my mind. It blows me away. I am simply an empty stage that this thing rushes through, that this thing floods. My mind is an empty screen for perceiving the universe. And the universe just overwhelms that empty screen, that empty space, which is my mind. Not entirely empty, because the source of human thought, its tribute brings of waters. So the image here is the mountain itself is like a flood that floods through me, like a river or a cataract or a waterfall, like a Niagara, that floods through me. And I add my own thoughts in a tiny tributary stream, like a feeble brook. My own thought contributes, but only a little bit, to this vast flood of the universe that comes through me. So the everlasting universe of things flows like a river through the mind and rolls its rapid waves, now dark, now glittering, now reflecting gloom, as though the mind is now an empty cave. And the waves of the river of reality flowing through the cave of my mind will sometimes glitter, but sometimes reflect the gloom in that cave. Now lending splendor, that is, the light from the water will cast light into the cave of my mind. In this place, where from secret springs, somewhere deep within me, the source of human thought, thought that comes from within me, its tribute brings of waters, but with a sound but half its own. Even the waters that I bring, the tributary stream of my thought, brings a sound that is only half my own because the rest of the sound comes from outside. Such as a feeble brook will oft assume in the wild woods among the mountains lone where waterfalls around it leap forever. All of that is the everlasting universe of things. Where woods and winds contend and a vast river flowing through the mind over its rocks ceaselessly bursts and raves. So what seems to provoke that is looking at Mont Blanc and looking at the Arve River. This is the section of Frankenstein that we looked at on Tuesday when Victor crosses the bridge and he sees the Arve River, as he himself puts it, raving over its rocks in the ravine of Arve. Same language here. But then something odd happens with the first word of the second stanza, which is we're getting a word which indicates simile. Thus is a word of comparison. You, you all know, I hope, 
that the criterion for simile is, is seeing the word like or just as or similar to or by analogy. Um, that's how similes work. Um, you use words of comparison where something is said to be like something else. Thus is such a word of comparison. It says, the thing that I've just described, let me compare it to something. Thus thou, ravine of Arv, dark, deep ravine, the thus isn't going to get to, the other shoe isn't going to fall until line 19, thou dost lie. So the structure of this sentence is, thus thou dost lie. In just the way that I've described, you lie, Ravina Barf. Same thing. Now that reverses our first approximation of stanza one. Because what we thought he was saying in stanza one, we saw the title, Mont Blanc, lines written in the Vale of Chamonix, and we thought, oh wow, he sees the mountain, and it goes flowing through his head like a river, and um, so what this is really about is how the human is overwhelmed by the natural. That's a moment of the sublime, the danger that we experience in the sublime. The natural world makes us feel as though we're nothing, just feeble brooks in this vast, wild abyss. So that's what the first stanza seems to say. But the second stanza says... This thing that I said in the first stanza, you provide a good analogy or emblem of it, he says to the natural scene around him, the ravine, the river flowing through it, the mountain above it. And if that sends you back, as it should to the first stanza, what that does to the first stanza is makes it say something like, let me give a philosophical metaphor for how the mind works. The everlasting universe of things flows through it. And the mind brings its own tribute of thought from secret springs. And they combine. And all of this happens in the mind. That's a metaphor for how the mind works. Then he says, oh, look, here's a ravine, here's a river, here's a mountain. It's a pretty good image of the mind. So suddenly it's the mind that seems to be the central focus. The mountain isn't this giant thing overwhelming the mind, but rather the mountain turns out to be a pretty decent picture, a pretty decent illustration of the more important thing, which is the mind. So now we're talking about the mind and using the mountain to illustrate it. Where we thought we'd been talking about the mountain and how it overwhelms the mind. Because if you're just using the mountain to illustrate how the mind works, that's a mental feature, that's a mental process. Oh, hi mountain, you're a pretty decent illustration for what I was talking about, which I'd be talking about whether you existed or not. So suddenly the mind seems to have priority over the mountain. We thought that the first stanza was describing how the mountain has priority over the mind. 
But suddenly, at the beginning of the second stanza, the mind seems to have priority over the mountain. Now, what's actually going to happen in this poem is there's a struggle between the mind and the mountain. What Shelley wants to say is the same thing that Dickinson wants to say when she writes, the brain is wider than the sky, famous first line of a Dickinson poem. The brain is wider than the sky. How is the brain wider than the sky? Well, if you look at the sky, the entire sky that you're seeing You're seeing it in your brain. So your brain is containing it and containing more than just the sky because, this, because you can also think about other things. In this case, for Dickinson, it's you. I can look at the sky and there's room for me to see the entire sky and to see you as well. So the brain is wider than the sky. Everything we can perceive we have to be as big as what we're perceiving or we couldn't perceive it. That's what Dickinson is saying. That's something like what Shelley is trying to say. If I can perceive you, then my mind is capable of everything in the world. And so the mind wins out over the world. The mind is more primary. The mind is deeper. The mind is more intense. Thus thou, Ravine of Arv, you're like my mind. You're a good illustration. But even as he tries to say that, it feels like he can't quite. It feels like he's trying to be the second spirit, but he's turning to the first spirit again. Thus thou, ravine of Arv, dark, deep ravine, thou many-colored, many-voiced veil, over whose pines and crags and caverns sail fast cloud shadows and sunbeams, awful scene where power in likeness of the Arv comes down from the ice gulfs that gird his secret throne, bursting <coughs> through these dark mountains like the flame of lightning through the tempest. So he's trying to say, you're a good illustration of the mind, but as soon as he tries to say, you're a good illustration of the mind, the thing that's supposed to be illustrating the mind takes over. And all he can do is get lost in wonder at what he's seeing. It's not, oh, look, convenient illustration, which is what the word thus wants it to be. But it's, oh, look, convenient illustration because, and then the mountain takes over and starts writing the sentence for him because he can't get away from it. He can't get to the predicate. At least he can't get to the predicate for ten lines. Then you can feel the effort, thou dost lie. Okay, finally, predicate. And then the mountain takes over again. Thy giant brood of pines around thee clinging, children of elder time in whose devotion the chainless winds still come and ever came to drink their odors and their mighty swinging to hear. And it's all mountain all the time again. This is like the second spirit being pursued around the pine frozen to ruin by the eternal whirlwinds. An old and solemn harmony, thine earthly rainbow stretched across a sweep of the ethereal waterfall whose veil robes some unsculptured image, the strange sleep which, when the voices of the <coughs> desert fail, wraps all in its deep eternity, thy caverns, echoing 
to the Arv's commotion, a loud, lone sound, no other sound contained. Thou art pervaded with that ceaseless motion. Thou art the path of that unresting sound, dizzy ravine. And when I gaze on thee, I seem as in a trance sublime and strange to muse on my own separate fantasy. So he's saying, I look at all this, and now it's as though I'm looking at my mind. But you have somehow completely overtaken it. You are my fantasy. It's not that you illustrate how the mind works. It's I look at you, and that's all there is in my mind. My own, my human mind, which passively now renders and receives fast influencings. So my mind becomes passive, influenced by you, influenced by everything that I'm seeing. And yet he's saying still, he's still trying to say you're an illustration of the mind. However, the reason it's an illustration of the mind is that it itself does the drawing. It has drawn that illustration. It is what is in the mind. So if it's an illustration, it is itself responsible for that illustration. And now he says, but still, I try to hold an unremitting interchange with the clear universe of things around. Maybe I can be like you. We can be one legion of wild thoughts. Thoughts in the landscape, thoughts in the mind. But now he's looking at some flock of birds high in the landscape, a legion of birds whose wandering wings now float above thy darkness. Remember the spirit. O thou who plumed with strong desire wouldst float above the earth, beware. Now float above thy darkness and now rest, where that or thou art no unbidden guest in the still cave of the witch poesy. So those thoughts now sometimes float above your darkness. They sometimes rest in the cave of the witch poesy. Is that cave in the mind? Or is it a cave in the landscape. What is a bidden guest in that cave? Darkness? Yes. Or the mountain itself might be a guest in a cave within the mountain. Poesy, who is seeking among the shadows that pass by, ghosts of all things that are, some shade of thee. So these are only shadows in the cave of poesy. And poesy is seeking some shade of the mountain itself, some phantom, some faint image, until the breast from which they fled recalls them, thou art there. So until I stop thinking about you, until poesy stops thinking about you, you are there, you are eternal, you will be there forever. Okay, we will pick up on with this on... Tuesday, if you're anxious about a paper topic, well, we're not going to get that deeply into Prometheus Unbound. So think about Prometheus Unbound. Um, lots of ample ground for you to write on. But um, just write something interesting. Do a close reading of a poem. Make a claim. Disagree with me. Enjoy yourself. Say something that matters. Or that's on the syllabus. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not a poem by Rod McEwen or something. Yeah. Okay, have a good weekend.